Our scripture reading today comes from 1 John 2, 3 through 11. Please follow along with me as I read. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. We are in 1 John. If you would turn there, 1 John chapter 2 is where we are. And as you are turning, I was just thinking about the, the last song that we sang, a day that will be in the presence of our Savior worshiping him. And one of our own is doing that this morning. Doyle Champion passed away into the presence of the Lord this past week. So be praying for the Champion family. Uh, I thought it's appropriate. We voted on 21 new members at the last business meeting last Sunday, and uh, we just, we just, the church family just keeps growing. We just got some on the other side of eternity and some right here. What a day when we'll all be together, right, in the presence of our Lord. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, and indeed, <laughs> what a day it will be when we'll be in your presence. No more crud. <laughs> No more of the, the difficulties of this life as we bask in your presence and fall at your feet. Lord, we thank you that we know today Doyle is with you. He's in your presence. Ninety-some years of age, Lord, he's walked this earth, and now he's in your presence, and we rejoice. We, we mourn. We, we certainly pray for the family that you would comfort them at this time. Lord, we are so grateful, though, the hope that we have. We do not mourn like those who have no hope because we know the end. And that's what John seeks to accomplish in this letter. And so, Father, guide us today as we look at the whole topic of assurance. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're in 1 John chapter 2. This past week, I, I saw a cartoon, and there was this man who worked for a security company, and he's trying to sell a system to this uh, another individual and it's clear the other individual is not interested and the man the salesman goes if it, it's if it's too expensive for you perhaps I could interest you in a false sense of security <laughs> assurance is important is it not I mean whether we it's the safety that comes from the security system a warranty that covers any parts that might break or malfunction or an insurance policy that protects us from unseen dangers. We like to have assurance. 
And that's true also in the spiritual realm. That's what John wants to highlight. In fact, many call this letter an epistle of assurance. And we'll see why as we go through. But there's a, a key verse to 1 John. In fact, I'd like you to turn there. It's in chapter 5, verse 13. And we'll get back to chapter 2. So keep your finger in, if you're using the old style, that is a book form. If you've got it on your phone, then you can just easily move. But 513, John tells us, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. It resembles his purpose in John, his in his gospel as well, John chapter 20. And here we see it in 1 John. He's repeating these things so that you might believe on the name of the Son of God or that you might go on believing, depending on how you render this. So thus, it should not be a surprise that as we enter this new section, it springs off of what he's talked about, our relationship with Christ, what it means to walk in the light, that he's now going to address how do we know these things? You notice in verse 3 here of chapter 2, he says, now this, by this, we know that we have come to know God. Knowing, hearing, seeing, we've already observed those words earlier in chapter 1. They are peppered throughout this letter. Now, I'm, put your little thinking hats on for a minute. I'm going to go into a little bit of the grammar, but this is, this is so important and, and significant. Most of the tenses that are used in the Greek of to know are in the perfect tense. And you say, well, yes, if you know Greek, you're going to say, well, yeah, that's, that's typical of the case. Not some of the words that he's using. It is very unusual. In fact, John will use perfect tense about 40% more of the time than any other writer. And you say, well, why is that so significant? Because what we're seeing more and more grammarians are showing is that the perfect tense is to highlight something. It's very significant. It's like the lights are going off when this tense is being used. It, it wants to draw your attention. And it, it, that reiterates what the purpose of his writing. He wants you to know. He wants you to be assured of the things that, that come into play. Now, the use of to know in John's gospel occurs two ways. One, it can be simply for intellectual information. Two plus two is four. I know that. But there's also a way of knowing, which I believe is seen here in verse 3, and that speaks of intimacy, a personal experience. Let me give you an illustration. I can say the Grand Canyon is beautiful. Never been there. It looks nice. I've seen pictures. I've watched a documentary. But if you've been to the Grand Canyon, you know how magnificent it is. It's a whole different realm. And this is the idea that John's trying to stress. You can, you can know these things about God on an intellectual level, but there's another level that is he, what he's trying to address here, and that is the one of religious assurance, this intimacy that he's seeking to stress. John is not unique to the Bible. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the prophets are actually condemning the people because they do not know God. Isaiah 1, verse 3, I love this verse. It says, an ox recognizes its owner, a donkey recognizes where its owner puts the food, but Israel does not, and here it is, does not know me. <laughs> the ox, you dumb ox, uh, well, the ox knows, donkey, donkey knows, but you don't know me, and my people do not understand. So they're condemned. 
Later in 1 Chronicles 28, we just walked through the life of David. When David hands the baton to Solomon, he says in chapter 28, And you, Solomon, my son, obey the God of your father. Serve him with a submissive attitude and a willing spirit. The Lord examines all minds and understands every motive of one's thoughts. If you seek him, if you will find him, if he abandons you, he will reject you. Know how the Lord has chosen you to build a temple. So understand, know. And, and John is saying, how do we know God? How do we know we have a relationship with him? This is, a, again, it's not foreign to the New Testament. Jesus states in John 17, I and them and you and me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know you sent me and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Marshall in his commentary writes, to know God thus involves knowledge of his character and requirements and obedience to these requirements. And so John is going to answer the question, how do we know we know God? And he gives us two what I call assurance test. The first is seen here in verse 3. If, last phrase, if we keep his commandments. It's one of obedience. Now careful here, I'm not saying keeping his commandments is not a condition of salvation or a means of securing a favor of God or his favor by our, what we do or don't do. In fact, Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. John's just highlighted our salvation. It's nothing we did. It was the blood of Jesus, verse 7. We see it in, in chapter 2, verse 2. And Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So it's what Christ has done for our salvation. But what John is going to highlight is that a believer will produce fruit at some point, at some phase of their life. It's part of being in the light. We looked at this. There's darkness and light. You're either in fellowship with the Lord or you're not in fellowship with the Lord. It's just like the person who says that they walk in the light, but they do the things of darkness. We see they, in verse 6 of chapter 1, they lie. And that's what he's going to stress here. In fact, look at verse 4. John says, I, those who claim that I've come to know God and yet do not keep his commandments... He is a liar. And we looked at, again, the, the focus of lying and truth earlier in chapter 1, and it's being reiterated here. One scholar states it well. Genuine faith must go beyond the mere intellectual assent concerning biblical doctrines. People must let the implications of these doctrines radically affect their hearts so that they respond positively to God with obedience and works of faith. Think about this for a moment. We can obey because we have to. We can obey because we need to. Or we can obey because we want to. The first category is a slave. They must obey. An employee, they need to obey. A follower of Jesus, it's obedience comes because we want to. There's an understanding of, of the love of God that's been showered on us. In John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I was talking to some folks from our church this past week. We are talking about Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. But I do what I do because I love the Lord. And we've stressed that before. And John is going to hammer this home today in the text. 
In other words, the Christian life is not a checklist or a list of spiritual chores that need to be kept. But it means that we're constantly living the Christian life as fully as possible. That is one that is seeking to be well-pleasing to the Lord. In other words, our assurance is grounded primarily and fundamentally in the work of Christ and how it plays out in our lives John's already established Christ has worked in our lives to bring us to this point. If we confess our sins, we, we are brought into the light. We have fellowship with the light. And consequently, there is obedience that would come from this. Often, a reason I think a person might question whether I, they really know God, at least this is what I have found, is because of a struggle with a particular sin or a past sin. And they said, I'm not sure I know God because I'm doing things I shouldn't do. And I would argue that's a pretty good indication you are his because the Holy Spirit is convicting. And John tells us in verse two, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate. So John knows that we're not going to reach a state of perfection. But what should characterize the believer is one of obedience. One that seeks to do what is right. Now, we can balance it the other way, right? John isn't giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card, so now I can do whatever I want to do, and the Lord forgives. That's not what he's saying either. You, we miss the point there as well. And so as we look at this, there's this balance. In fact, I wrote down a couple things here as we boil this down here in verses 3, 4, and 5. And that is, obedience does not produce genuine faith. Genuine faith produces obedience. If that faith has been established and now there's a walk with the Lord, obedience, just, it just naturally flows. Justification, that is the point at which we are declared righteous, is not a process. Careful, there's teaching even in the evangelical circles of new perspective on Paul that would argue justification is a process. I don't see that because 2 Corinthians 5 says when we, Christ took our sin and we, we placed our faith in him, we're declared righteous. His righteousness is reckoned to our account. A genuine faith, another implication from these verses is genuine faith is not simply adopting a creed, saying the right words, or joining the church. Genuine faith is a life orientation. And genuine faith we see here is proactive it's never passive several years ago i had the opportunity pastor michael you know is from brazil but i had the opportunity to attend the ceremony downtown indy where he was sworn in as a u.s citizen i don't know if you've had an opportunity to be a part of a ceremony such as that uh, uh, the declaration they have to make I'll just give you a portion of it. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and adjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, state, sovereignty of whom which I have hitherto made a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States, and on it goes. Michael made a pledge to our, an oath to our country. This wasn't to an organization or a one-year subscription. <laughs> it wasn't a temporary visa. When he became, Michael became a citizen on that day, it entailed all the rights and privileges, but with it, 
an expectation that he would vote. He would become a contributor to the United States culture and abide by the laws, all those expectations. Similarly, when we become a believer, there is a manner in which you behave, an expectation that th that should follow. And, and for the believer, it's even more so of an understanding of the love that we have for our Savior that drives it. And you say, well, that's fine, Hoffman. Well, then how do you handle verse 5? Because verse 5 is problematic, and uh, we're not going to skip it. But uh, so we'll hit it head on. Let's look what he says. John says, okay, whoever obeys his word truly in this person, the love of God has been and is perfected. And you go, oh, 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 I thought you said we didn't have to be perfect. Some would take this that, that we need to be fully sanctified this side of heaven. Well, that doesn't fit with chapter 2, verse 1, that we confess our sins. So how do you reconcile this? What is John talking about? He's not talking about perfect, flawless love. I would argue he's speaking of the completion of the fulfillment of love. In other words, the phrase speaks of our love that God makes complete when it expresses itself in acts of obedience. One commentary writes, when a Christian moves beyond simply obeying God and desires to please him, God's love in him or her has reached its desire effect. It has truly been perfected. I think that's what he's saying here. This, this is where we're, we should be as followers. And if you notice, John, everything is, is black and white. You're either in the darkness, you're in the light. Either you love God or you don't love God. Again, John is not saying there isn't room for progress, development. We're going to see that time and time again in this letter. Nor is he saying that we'll never sin, because that was the accusation, remember, we looked at before. Some folks saying, I don't have any sin. John goes, oh yeah, you're lying to yourself and to others, and ultimately you're making God a liar. So that doesn't fit. And he says here in verse 6, the one who says he resides in God, that, that word is abide. It's used 24 times in this letter. This intimacy, this fellowship, we saw that in chapter 1. The Son and the Father have fellowship. We've been brought into that fellowship, and we abide with him. The same term is used in John 15 with the, the vine and the branches. You know the story, right? We talked about that. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. We, we, we're abiding in him. It's where we get our nourishment. It's where we, we receive the, the source to live our lives and to produce fruit that gives glory to him. So, unless we're confused here, uh, John says, let me give you an example. Because notice what he says in verse 6. The one who says he abides ought himself to walk just as Jesus walked. I love that we have YouTube because there are a lot of things I don't know how to do. And I'm sure my dad gets tired of me calling him, hey, dad, how do you fix this? Or this sink isn't working properly. And you can watch a YouTube video and then you can try it, mess it up. And then, you know, it's, you got to call a plumber. But it's great that you can try. And... <clears throat> All the more, John says, we, we not only have an advocate, we not only have the atoning sacrifice, we got the perfect example, and that is Jesus Christ, that has modeled it for us, and we can follow. There, there's no questions here of how I'm supposed to live this out. What a comfort, right, in, in knowing this. And 
John's not done because he's going to spend the next several verses laying out exactly how that example has been set for us. So notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, he's drawing them in. I'm not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment. But then he says, on the other hand, verse 8, I'm writing a new commandment. You're going, I really don't know what he's saying here. Good. We'll work through this together. Uh, this is... I think what John is trying to say here, and most scholars do, the, the command to love one another is not a new one in the New Testament. We can go back to Leviticus 19. Go back to the Old Testament. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus states in Mark 12, what is the summation, what summarizes the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so this is that first commandment it's been there from the beginning there's been no question on this and and it was heard from jesus as well but there's an element that is also new and what we mean by new it's because of christ we we have a new emphasis we have a new example and we have a new experience jesus states in john 13 a new commandment i give you love one another that's not new but the next phrase is, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. There's the example. Jesus said, and it's also the new commandment. Jesus said, I, I, I'm blowing that one out of the water. Let me give you a new idea of what this exactly means. Because I'm going to model it for you. This love is sacrificial. It's, it's willing to give one's life. I mean, think about the life of Christ, Jesus. He didn't shy away from publicans or tax collectors and sinners. He, he, he met the outcast Samaritan woman in the middle of the day and asked her for a cup of water, which was forbidden among Jews and Gentiles or Samaritans. He loved Roman soldiers, centurions, demoniacs, tax collectors, as we mentioned, those who persecuted him. Remember what he said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And even those who would betray him, Jesus loved to the point of giving his life. That's the type of love that is expected from those who are following the example. It's been modeled. This is why the, you think about it, this is why often the New Testament sets as a template Christ's life in what he's accomplished. Let me give you two examples. Ephesians 4. We forgive because even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. There's the template. It's not how wonderful some Christian leader was in the past or some reformer. No, it's Christ that sets the example. Well, let me give you another. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loves the church. Whew. Last time I know, Christ gave his life for the church. And so it, it, we have those, those bracelets, WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? I said, maybe we should start some that say HWJL. How would Jesus love? I mean, that's the question. And it's driving us as believers, right? As I look at this model, this is how I'm to live my life. And so he's taking this topic of obedience and he's going to hone it in to an area that's very sensitive and probably one that's been a problem in the church. Notice what he says in verse 8, by the way. He says, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Who's the source of true light? That's Jesus Christ. 
He is the truth. It's already been stated twice here in this short little epistle. And it's interesting that love and light go hand in hand. And we're going to see this in verses 9 through 11. They are directly connected. If you were to walk in the light, then you will be fulfilling the new covenant. That is because you're in Christ. It's expected. An apple tree branch does not bear a plum. It doesn't. It's grafted into the apple tree. It's what's expected. Notice what he says in verses 9 through 11. This is where I'm going to step on toes. Well, John does. We'll let John do it. The one who says he's the light but still hates his fellow Christian is still in the darkness. The one who loves his fellow Christian resides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his fellow Christian, he repeats this, was mentioned there in verse 9, is in the dark, walks in the dark, and looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, right? Walks in the dark uh, and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Our example of Christ and how we are to live is now going to be brought out here. And what we see is these assurance tests. It's not just that there's an absence of sin and obedience, but there's also a presence of love. And that's vital here as we move through this section. Christian love is not a shallow sentiment. It's not a hallmark moment. Ooh. Right? A fleeting emotion. But it's an action that is practical. And if you don't think that, think of the one another passages in the New Testament. And how love is driving it. Have the same mind. Bear one another's burdens. Confess your sins to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Edify one another. Admonish one another. It, it, it's love that has hands and feet. It's radical. It's not just mere words. It's selfless. It, it's a love which is often inconvenient. Paul describes this type of love in 1 Corinthians 13. He writes, love is patient, love is kind, it is not envious. Love doesn't brag, it is not puffed up, it's not rude, it's not self-serving, it's not easily angered or resentful, it's not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Wow. That is so foreign to the world's concept of love, isn't it? It's what can I get, the world would argue. All packaged in love. I see these signs in people's yards, this is love or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. If I could just spray 1 Corinthians across it and some other verses, but we'll leave that. 1 Corinthians for sure, this is love. Love that has been modeled for us from the life of Christ. For the one walking in the light, having fellowship with the Lord, claiming to know God, there is no license to hate, greeds, jealous, envy, self-centeredness. Those all are under the realm of darkness. And what did he say? Look at <laughs> verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet keep walking in the darkness, we are not practicing the truth Whew. we're talking about walking in the realm of light 
It's a love that has an action that has ultimately developed into a habit, I would argue. The true gospel is about faith expressing itself in love. Anything else is a counterfeit. Notice what he states in verse 11, but the one who hates, excuse me, verse 10, the one who does these things, they're going to cause stumbling. Now, scholars debate, is it st causing a stumbling block to others? And there could be that, but I think the immediate context is they stumble. They fall into sin. They fall ultimately into apostasy. Why? Because they're walking in the dark. It's hard to see in the dark. A recent study from a professor at the University of Edinburgh states, human sensory orders are recalibrated when faced with the reduced illumination levels of the night. Sounds like a doctoral dissertation, doesn't it? It's harder to judge depth and distance, details are obscured, colors muted, and on it goes. It's no wonder you stumble. We don't have a ceiling light in our office at home. Now, why you would not put a light in the ceiling, I don't know, but we won't go there. The problem is, there's no, the switch doesn't work either, so I have to go all the way to the desk to turn on the light in that room, and inevitable, someone by the name of DMH leaves books out, and I stumble over the books. Now, I know you're asking, well, forget the light in the ceiling, why do you leave books out? But that's a whole other story. But the problem is, a stumble, it's dark. It's no wonder that despite roads being less active at night, approximately 50% of our serious car accidents and fatalities occur when it's dark. And John says, to the one who hates his brother, is not loving as Christ loves, verse 11, they are, first he says they walk in darkness. They dwell in darkness. You know, it's interesting have you met folks who they almost like the dark? I, I don't need your help. I'm okay. Yet, <laughs> they stumble and, and fall off cliffs. That's why in chapter 1, don't miss this, in 1-9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, forgiving us our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we have to admit we are insufficient. Those dwelling in darkness often don't see, and as John has already stated, either they're lying to the world, they're lying to themselves, and they're also calling God a liar. So we got a problem. Recently I was with a friend. The gospel shared it more than once. And there was nothing there. There's no connection. Oh, if you could just see this one that, that loves you so. Notice it says, John says, not only are they walking in darkness, they do not know where they're going. Salvation just isn't seen. And that's the danger of sin. John 12 states, though Jesus has performed so many miraculous signs before them, they refused to believe in him so that the word of the prophet Isaiah would be filled. The Lord has believed who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, the text goes on, if they, for this reason they could not believe because, again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes, he's hardened their heart, so they would not see with their eyes and understand and turn. It's like Pharaoh. He hardens his heart the first few plagues, but eventually God says, fine, 
I'll harden your heart as well. And you're not going to see. You don't know where you're going. And this is the danger. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, be, take heed. The worst thing you can do is if the Lord says, fine, have at it. If we walk in the light, we are called to love one another. So, how are we doing in that realm? Let me ask you a few very pointed questions. <laughs> When's the last time you listen to someone rather than share your woes, stories, or opinions? My wife shares with me that one of the things she does in her office is that when she does family counseling, she takes a ball of yarn, and the person who speaks takes the ball of yarn, and then they pass it if they talk. She said, inevitable, you have one person who has a whole lot of yarn. <laughs> Philippians 2, instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. It's selfless living. Here's another question. Are you quick to give God and others credit? Romans 12, love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness in honoring one another. Wow. It's putting others first. Here's another when it comes to loving one another. Is someone holding you accountable in your life? And how you're engaging others. I mean, let's face it, we all have blind spots. Transparency, openness will help reduce the danger of hubris taking a foothold in our lives. And that's true. And if you're married, I'm not talking about a spouse. I think they're, men, you need another men's, man speaking into your life. Ladies, you need another lady speaking into your life and say, no, you, you, you need to guard your tongue. <laughs> how do you speak of others? Whether it's through private conversations, social media. Are you critical, gossiping, making fun of others? Ooh, ouch. The one who hates his fellow Christian is still in the dark. How do you engage those on the margins of society, the needy, the minorities? Failing to love others isn't just those you hate, it's also those you just don't care about <laughs> or perceive they have nothing that you can benefit from. When's the last time you've sacrificed your agenda, your time, your desires for somebody else? And let's face it, time is the rarest commodity, I think, in our society today. Giving up time, etc. And finally, when you're dealing with a difficult person in your life, and perhaps a name has already popped into your head, <laughs> when is the last time you've prayed not only for them, but for your own heart? If you're in the light, you will love your fellow Christian. John is very clear. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. If you claim you're in the light, you got to live in the light. you got to obey the Lord, and you got to love one another. You know, you look at those two. You look at obedience and love, and you ask, what do they have in common? There's two major elements. First of all, both call for humility and dying to self, don't they? Obeying the Lord, loving others. It shouldn't surprise us. Matthew 16, Jesus said, you want to follow me? You want to know me? Then deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow after me. Wow. That's the Christian faith. Secondly, when it comes to obeying the Lord and loving one another, 
Both of them indicate that, hey, I was a wretch saved by God's grace. And in light of that, this is the least that I could do. That's why he stressed earlier on in chapter 1, it's the blood of Christ that has cleansed us. That he is faithful, he is righteous, he has done this for us, we have an advocate. And when you know all that, this just flows. <laughs> this is what's expected. Uh, an American citizen? Yeah, I vote. That's expected. I obey the laws. That's expected. This is what I do. All the more as a believer. The difference is, I have a relationship with God Almighty. I love communion. And we do this once a month, and hopefully you received... Uh, as you entered the juice and the bread, it's all in one. The reason I love communion, one of the reasons, it's a good time for a tune-up. Our obedience to the Lord, our, our love for others, often need to be recalibrated, <laughs> I call it. We need to be reminded in communion, this isn't about us, this was about all that Christ has accomplished through his blood and his body being broken for us. And thus, it should cause us in turn to love him by obeying him as well as loving others. So as we partake of the communion, we need to spend some time in prayer. But let me ask you this morning, first, do you have fellowship with the Lord? Are you in the light? Do you know what it means to have Christ as your Savior? If not, this is not for you today. This is to remember what Christ has done. You need to turn to the Lord and allow this, this communion to be a glorious... This is what I've done today. I've turned to the Lord. I've confessed my sin. I've recognized that I need His grace, His, the dependence on what He accomplished on the cross. For those of us who claim that we walk in the light, that we have fellowship with the Lord, that, that we know the Lord, then let me ask you, how are you doing in the realm of obedience? Is there some sin of disobedience this past week that you need to address before the Lord? How are you doing on loving the not so lovely? <laughs> are there some folks in your life, yeah, I, I, uh, the only prayer it's been is an imprecatory prayer. <laughs> yeah, I really need to bend my knee and show grace and just pray for them. So let's spend some time with the Lord this morning and then we'll go to the table communion
bore our sins on the cross. He shed his blood. He became our atoning sacrifice so that, Lord, the penalty for our sin has been paid for. And by placing our faith, recognizing, confessing, Lord, coming to you, we have righteousness that has been gifted to us through Christ. Lord, we marvel at that grace that we can be brought into the fellowship and the joy that comes as John has talked about in chapter 1. Lord, that's not thus a license to live as we want, but it's a reminder to the debt we owe and the relationship we have with you that should flow out of a love of obedience and a love for others. Forgive us, O Lord, where we fall short. We have that old nature that just raises its head from time to time. And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We as a people need your forgiveness. Both as a country and as a church, big C. And so, Father, as we come, we want pure hearts, clean hearts, Lord as we relish and remember once again the incredible gift you have given and the opportunity that we have to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul states in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I have received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. Remember, this is a, this is a church that had some real problems. <laughs> love was a major issue. He's already dealt with it. That's why he gets to 13 later. But in, even in the first part of chapter 11, before he lays out the communion, he says, you've you, you got to deal with this dissension. You've got to come together because we rally around the cross. And he says, what I've received from the Lord, I pass on to you. The night he was betrayed, he took that bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You realize that that upper room, when he's giving, Jesus is giving these commands, laying out this ordinance for the, his followers. He also talks about, how will the world know that you follow me? By your love for one another. Last week we had an unsaved individual here and he said, there's such love for one another. I said, yeah, that's CBF. Keep it up. But we as a church, Big C, need to be known to be loving one another. Why? Because his blood has been spilt. And so after that supper, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you. The bread and the juice are just a very small token of the incredible sacrifice your son made for us. You sent him because, according to John 3, you loved the world. He came because he loved you 
and sought to be obedient. But he also came because he loves us. Lord, thank you. We marvel at the grace that has been bestowed on us so that we can walk in the light and so that we can know that we know you. In Jesus' name.